Friends, it's a tough week to preach on love. There's been so much suffering and hate in our news. From bombings in Baghdad that have killed about 300 people, to violence that's breaking out in South Sudan over the weekend that's already had at least 100 dead, to racially charged police shootings in our own nation of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling, to the shootings of the police officers in Dallas, leaving five dead, including the death of Brent Thompson, who had married just two weeks prior. How can we preach about the fruit of the Spirit, this list of good things that Paul gives us in Galatians 5, when they just seem so absent? Well, the answer is not easily. We live in a world and country that seems less and less unified. There are opinions left and right and in between. There's a general sense, I think, that we are increasingly disintegrating. In the midst of this, one of the things that our world desperately needs are people who are integrated within themselves. The word integrated comes from the root integer, you might not be surprised, which simply means whole. We need people who are whole people who have consistency of thought and action and virtue. Sometimes we experience these moments of wholeness. Maybe you've had experiences. I'm reminded of my freshman year in college. I was there in an all-male dorm, a small dorm on campus, and the resident directors and resident assistants had set up a open mic night. And one of the guys who signed up was Daniel. Now, Daniel was incredibly warm. He had a smile that could light the room. He, you would shake his hand, and you would feel like you were doing him just the biggest favor. He was intelligent and bright, but he was also just slow at processing information. It took him a little bit longer than others. So conversations with him would take a little bit longer. And so it was with some trepidation that we saw Daniel come up to the front of the room and tell us, he was going to sing Frank Sinatra's Fly Me to the Moon. And then we looked, and in his hand was a trumpet. And it quickly became clear he was also going to accompany himself. <laughs> and you have to keep in mind the context of this situation, because we just heard a rap about a cat who owned a million dollars. So our nervousness was probably justified. But the music started, and Daniel opened his mouth, and he sang. And oh, boy did he sing. He swung and he crooned and then he brought the trumpet to his mouth and coaxed these beautiful notes out of it. The group kind of started in kind of like that stunned silence, you know, like, oh my goodness. And then the cheering broke out. It was like in this moment, Daniel was right where he was supposed to be. He was whole. All the parts of him were unified as he sung and performed. A hurting world doesn't just need moments of wholeness, of integration. We need people who live this way, with all the different aspects of who we are brought together, linked up as we're supposed to be. This isn't just something that our world needs. It's something that it wants. It talks about it. Alan and Laura Lee, you might know, they recently went to a Young Living convention. And Young Living is a company that sells essential oils 
And the whole purpose of this convention, or one of the purposes, was to learn how to live your passion. And one of the speakers got up, and obviously they have to find out what their passion is before they can live it, and gave a couple of questions to ask in order to determine what their passion was. And the first question he gave was, outside of your workplace, whatever that might be, what is something you did in the past week that brought meaning or significance to you? And the second question was basically the same question, but at work, what is something you did in the past week that brought meaning or significance to you? And the idea behind these questions is you find where the two overlap. They're trying to find a unifying theme. Perhaps another way to understand what they're trying to do is they're trying to find where are you most integrated. We want to be these kinds of whole people, fully integrated, united, consistent inside and out. Some of us might be familiar with various types of personality theories or assessments. There's the Myers-Briggs, there's StrengthsFinders, all these different ways often used in workplaces. Well, one personality assessment theory is called the Enneagram. And the Enneagram has nine different types of people, they say. They're very originally numbered one through nine. But what I find really interesting about the Enneagram is for each personality type, you have directions of disintegration and you have directions of integration. And so for the Enneagram, if you're a one, as you become more healthy, as you're sort of the best one you can be, you become more like a seven. And for the seven, as that person gets healthier, they become more like a five. And as the five gets healthier, they develop the traits of an eight, and so on and so on. There's this idea that integration is not just about being one thing really, really well. It's about bringing together all the best possibilities of what it means to be human. In some sense, this sermon series that we're starting on the fruit of the Spirit this morning is about becoming integrated people. Because when we think about what it means to be integrated and how this can be part of our response to a world that is hurting and divided, the fruit of the Spirit should come to mind. The fruit of the Spirit is what an integrated, or we might say mature, Christian looks like. The fruit of the Spirit, of course, you can see them in your worship guide. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. I find this idea of being integrated helpful because when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, you notice that he doesn't say fruits of the Spirit. It's a singular word. Paul's not imagining any kind of specialization, even though sometimes that's what we might want. You know, I might say, oh, Fred, why don't you take self-control? Rachel, you, oh, gentleness, that would be nice for me. And then, guys, I've decided I'll take joy. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. That's not the work of the Spirit. Instead, we want to have all of these fruit in our lives. All of this is to say that if this series is about becoming integrated Christians who are more like the Father, we also want to learn both how to cultivate this fruit in our lives and also why the fruit is attractive in the first place. Because if you're a gardener and you do not want a certain kind of fruit, you're just not going to grow it. This morning we're going to spend some particular time reflecting on what Paul gives first place to in his list. Love. Love is a little tricky because it's a word that carries a lot of different 
kinds of meanings or connotations. We think of love and we might think about the love we see in television and movies. In high school, I was a big fan of the television show Smallville, which is about Superman or Clark Kent growing up in Smallville, which was the name of his town in Kansas. And in episode 100, the fifth season, you can tell I watched a lot, uh, Clark invites his then-girlfriend to come, and he's never shared that he has superpowers with her. And he tells her to bundle up, and she shows up in the middle of summer in the Kent family barn, and there she is, and the music starts, right? And he whisks her off to his fortress of solitude at one of the poles, and it's cold, and then he takes her in his arms, and he super jumps to the top of a glacier, and then he takes some ash in his hand and crushes it into a diamond. That would be a nice skill to have. And then he puts it on a ring and proposes, and oh, my high school heart, that's love! And it is in some sense, isn't it? Or we might think, when we think about love, we might think about weddings. That's a little closer to home for me. We might think about weddings we've been to, weddings we've been in, our own weddings. And if you're me, your memories of your ceremony are a little blurry because your eyes were mostly filled with tears. And Rachel, your wife, insists on the picture of you wiping your eyes being in the wedding album. But these memories are real and they're full of emotion. And that's love. Or another way we think about love is the love we see in families. We see little siblings and our hearts melt as they're arm in arm, brother and sister, brother and brother, sister and sister, giggling at inside jokes, enjoying one another. Our hearts delight when we see older siblings who are no longer putting holes in walls, but instead getting along as friends. And that's love. Maybe it's the love of parents for children or children for parents. For the last six years or so, my mom has been helping to take care of my grandma, who has a rare form of dementia. And I remember my mom one time telling me, you know, you never expect, growing up, that one day you would have to be a parent for your own mother. But when that day comes, you do it, because that, of course, is also love. There's love of friends who get together every other year, traveling from all over the country to reunite The love of friends who get together every Thursday morning for coffee. The love of friends who text and call when something goes horribly wrong in life. And that is love. We could go on and on, right? There's the love of sports teams. There's the love that I have for ice cream, which is a whole lot. That's probably its own sermon. There's the love for rain or different kinds of weather. And with all these meanings, we might be inclined to think, oh, this this word love, it's, it's cheap. We use it for everything has really no meaning. Maybe it's actually, though, that the word is so full, so rich and expansive, that we can use it for everything. Where it gets more challenging, of course, is when we're trying to work out what a Christ-saturated, a Christ-like love looks like. Have you ever thought, what does it mean for me to love ice cream as a follower of Jesus? Probably not. These are some interesting questions, I think. What does it mean to love a sports team as a Christian? What does it mean to love a friend, a neighbor, brother, sister, spouse as a Christian? Well, 1 Corinthians 13 is helpful here, and it's a passage we might be over-familiar with to the point of having trouble even hearing it now. But when Paul wrote it, he didn't just mean it as sort of a heartwarming list to be read at weddings. No, he's addressing a people who have developed a dangerous sense of superiority and it's fracturing their church. 
You see, in the preceding chapter in 1 Corinthians 12, he's talked about a number of gifts and said these are all for the body. Different people have different gifts. It's for the building up of the body. And then in 1 Corinthians 14, on the other side of 13, he's going to talk specifically about tongues. But here, in the middle of this conversation about gifts, these things that might incline us to a sense of superiority, Paul stops and talks about love. He's showing the people in us exactly what this love looks like. And here's what he says. You can follow along in your worship guides. It's printed there. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does that sound familiar? Love, patience, kindness? Does not envy It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies... They will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Paul here is at great pains to tell the Corinthians that these gifts, these things that you value so desperately, that make you feel like you're better than your neighbor, they're going to pass away. And if they're not marked by love, they really have no meaning at all. What is interesting to me in this passage is just how simple love is. Love is patient. Well, well, but I mean, even if I get frustrated sometimes, Paul, at this person, like, I can still love them, right? You can kind of hear Paul just saying, love is patient. Love does not boast. Well, yeah, I'm not really boasting. I'm just talking a lot about myself to those. I can still love those around me, right? Well, love does not boast. It's interesting also in this passage, nowhere are we told that we're allowed to choose who we get to love. Love does not discriminate. We don't get the chance to pick, oh, okay, I've got five people I can love this week. You, 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 not you, you. No, love does not discriminate. As Jesus reminds us, we're called even to love our enemies. It's challenging in its very simplicity, isn't it? Even as it challenges us, love also 
holds deep attraction for us. Most of us want to be loving people. It's an attractive fruit. Which leads me to a question, because knowing all of this about love still leaves me wondering, why does Paul put love first on his list? I want us to just reflect on three possible reasons. It's not an exhaustive list by any, reason, any means, but three reasons that Paul might have put love on his list first. The first reason is that love establishes who we are. It's foundational to our very identity. You might remember the story of Jesus' baptism. He goes down to the Jordan, and there is John the Baptist, and he's baptizing people. He says, John, I want to be baptized. And there's a little bit of argument as John doesn't want to really do it, but okay, Jesus, I will do so. And as Jesus is brought up out of the water, the text says that the heavens open, the Spirit of God descends like a dove, and there's a voice from heaven. This is my Son, whom I love. It's a moment, it's an identity-forming moment that's going to last Jesus through the very crucifixion. We have similar experiences in our own baptism when God speaks over us and says, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love. We practice it again in some sense in communion each week when we come forward and we come forward out of an invitation to love. This is identity marking, identity forming. You might remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13 that we just read. Then I shall know even as I am fully known. We can perhaps replace fully known with fully loved. There's this idea that Augustine, one of the old theologians had, you might have heard the phrase, you are what you eat, right? You are what you eat. Well, Augustine added that you are or you become like what you love. And we see this, right? This is the NFL fan who come the fall is going to be in five fantasy leagues, watching every game, reading reports on ESPN so he knows who's got the tweaked hamstring and who doesn't. They love football. It becomes a part of who they are. As Christians, when we respond to God's love and begin to love him and others, we find ourselves becoming more and more like God. Love forms our identity. And it's out of this identity then that we begin to live out the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. It's foundational in that sense. Another reason Paul may have listed love first is that love, perhaps more than any of the other fruit, orients us externally. This is the whole point of 1 Corinthians 13. Love is not about dominance and superiority. It's about an orientation that is patient and generous and humble. It's impossible to love without an object. I cannot love ice cream unless ice cream exists. And thank goodness that it does. The relationality of love is also right at the heart of God. Kevin will also often talk about this dance that the Trinity is doing, right? What the Greek fathers would have called perichoresis. And there's this idea, I think, that if the Trinity is having this dance, then the music they're dancing to is love. And the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are looking at each other with mutual delight and smiling and enjoying one another. And then at some point they open up and they look to us. They say, hey, why don't, why don't you join us? See, love is externally oriented, and it's inclusive. 
There's a sense in which, when, with Paul, by Paul leading off with love in the fruit of the Spirit, he's saying we're to invite all to come and participate in this life, in this good life, life of love and peace and joy and patience and so on. Love forms us. Love brings us outside of ourselves. And one final thought about why Paul might have included love first on this list is to remind us that love is a virtue. We might not typically think of love in that way. We might typically think that love is a feeling or an emotion. Maybe we even think of it as an action. We might have heard the phrase that love is a verb, right? But when we see it in the fruit of the Spirit, it's not really any of those things exactly. It's a virtue, it's, which is more like a disposition or orientation, a way that you go about doing things. Virtue in the ancient world had a bit of a different meaning, some additional connotations than we have today. The Greek philosopher Aristotle had this idea that virtue basically meant doing what you were supposed to do. So a hammer, in this sense, could be virtuous. As long as, you're, as that hammer is nailing a nail into the wall, all good. That's a virtuous hammer. But take that hammer and try to slice bread we all kind of intuitively know that that's just not going to work. There's a lack of virtue in that hammer. In some sense, we were made to practice the fruit of the Spirit. This is what we were most naturally made to do. These virtues, the fruit of the Spirit, love, is formed in us, not then by willing it into existence or by having to catch the eye of the pretty lady or handsome man across the room but by deliberate practice. Virtue requires deliberately orienting ourselves with the Spirit's help in these ways. You have to practice the virtues to get good at them. And we all know this. It's why parents teach children over and over and over and over and over again to share. Right? It takes a lot of time and practice to learn the virtues of generosity and kindness. Perhaps sadly, it's the same when we grow up. It takes practice to love. Practicing love can take all kinds of forms. Maybe it's telling someone you love them even on the days where you're not really sure that you feel it. But the words orient yourself and wear a groove in your life that next time you'll slip into more comfortably. Maybe it's when your frustrating coworker comes up to you and all those thoughts immediately start clamoring in your mind. Maybe it's just prayerfully letting them go. Maybe it's an act of reaching out to someone who you know is lonely and isolated, even when that would usually be uncomfortable for you. It's not waiting for the emotion or the feeling. It's practice. Because love is a virtue and because it's something that the Spirit is working in us, we might expect him to take us to the gym, so to speak. We would expect to be placed in places to practice. Again, my freshman year of college, I came to the very distinct realization, very simple, that I just didn't like people very much. And I would own that, I would express that, and it wasn't that I hated people, it was just, I'd seen people who cared for people, and I surely was not one of them. But here I was on this floor with about 27 other guys, and I found something. I found over the year, I became kind of interested in their stories, drawn in by their lives, When someone was suffering, I wanted to empathize with them. When they had a victory, I wanted to celebrate. And at the end of that year, I realized, oh, you know what? I I don't think that I don't like people. In fact, I love these people. 
In some sense, the Spirit had placed me in a place to practice, even unexpectedly, this virtue. There's always a danger, though, for some of us when we start talking about practice, isn't it? Because practice sounds really good to those of us who like the checklists. We might think, oh, practice. I can carve out some time for Monday uh, for love, and then Joy can do Tuesday evening. Wednesday, I've got a block at lunch. We'll do peace then. Perfect. By the end of the week, I'll have the fruit of the Spirit practiced. Whoa, 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 no. Right? That's antithetical to all of Paul's, what he's been saying in all of Galatians, what we've been talking about. You might remember two weeks ago, we were in Galatians 5, and in Galatians 5.13, he says, you, brothers and sisters, were called to be free. We're not slaves to practice or slaves to a list. Here's what one author has said about freedom. He says, it may be that many people begin on the path of growth and intuit where their growing freedom is leading them into spiritual realms and larger responsibilities that will take them far beyond their ordinary states, and they become afraid. It would be more comfortable if they could loosen their chains of habit and negativity just a little, because they, since they suffer under them, while not throwing them off altogether. To be free is, for most of us, more threatening than to not be free at all. Friends, our invitation is to freedom that's both liberating and terrifying. Paul is laying out a model of what the Christian life looks like, and he invites us to practice it. But it's a practice that is done hand-in-hand with the Spirit and initiated by God, because we are free. Part of what it means to be integrated Christians, I believe, is to be in such close relationship with God that the work that we do and the work that God does, the line between those starts to get blurry. And suddenly it doesn't really become clear who is practicing this life in us. Is it God? Is it us? I'm not really sure. It's a beautiful thing. But it only happens as we practice with the Spirit. And we can't just choose to practice one thing. Even love, perhaps one of the greatest virtues, needs all the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. Love without joy becomes bitter. Love without peace grows restless. Love without patience is rude. Love without kindness becomes empty words. Love without goodness tends to be hollow and empty. Love without faithfulness soon looks elsewhere. Love without gentleness can be harsh, and love without self-control descends into obsession. If this week has reminded us of anything, it's that our world is in desperate need of God's redemptive work in love. And one of the ways he does that is through integrated Christian people. We need people who are like my friend Daniel, who play the trumpet in the face of hate, sing out in the darkness, and bring love into a world that is just so desperate for it. With the Spirit's help, may we be these kinds of people. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I am so aware of my own inadequacies and suspect that my brothers and sisters here share that sense when we look at the world's hurt. Would your spirit fill our lives, mark us with your fruit, 
that we may bring light to a dark place. Thank you for your grace that invites us to live these things in freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.